The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we have got on Adam Lane Smith, who is an attachment specialist. Now, welcome to the show, Adam. How are you doing? Man, I am so good. I'm so glad to talk to you. This is cool. That's awesome, man. Well, I've done a brief intro right there, and I'm sure off the bat, somebody is like, what is an attachment specialist? So tell people a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. I I worked as a licensed psychotherapist for a long time, and my specialty became trauma and attachment. And attachment is the way two human beings connect to each other to form a mutually fulfilling circle, sharing their needs, being securely attached with trust and bonding and openness. That's what attachment is supposed to be. And the psychology community, especially here in America, doesn't put any much stock in attachment at all. That's for kids. We don't have to worry about it. Don't even talk about it. Here's the problems. It's a diagnosis, probably needs medication. And here's a couple treatments we can do along the way. I started diving into attachment. Then I started teaching it to other clinic directors. I started teaching it to other psychotherapists, doctors, nurses. Everybody needed to hear about it. Then I got on the internet and it blew up big. And then I had to quit my psychotherapy practice because you can't coach and you can't do therapy outside of the one little state where you are out of the 50 states. So to coach internationally, I had to retire my license. And now I do invent this role, an attachment specialist, where I go around the world, I teach and I coach internationally with executives, CEOs, celebrity families, everybody who needs attachment and doesn't know what it is. And that's, I've had to invent this role. So it's been fun along the way. That's interesting. So tell me a little bit about the story. What is it that got you even interested in this area? You know, I, I worked with a lot of low-income families when I first started, and I worked with death penalty inmates, and then I got in a different clinic where I worked with high-level CEOs and executives and, and rich people, and, and I saw all across the board there was something under 
me their problems that was really there. It wasn't quite what they had taught us in school where it's, ah, it's just a chemical imbalance. Ah, some people are just messed up. Ah, don't worry about it. We don't even know why it happened. Just start fixing it this way. Here's some medications. It wasn't like they had taught us in school. There was something here. What was the unifying factor? And it went back to, did they as a child learn that they can give and receive love with other human beings or were they acted upon and did they become fearful and if they did, do they believe they are the problem and they are unlovable or are they afraid of everybody else out there? Are they anxious attachment style or are they avoidant attachment style of keeping people out? And that creates two different dynamics when you have that broken attachment style like that. And the research shows, lo and behold, about 50% of American adults struggle with attachment issues of some kind. So it's a big problem. Okay. So when you're talking about different types of attachment, Break that down for me. Can you go into it and explain that? 100%. I get that question a lot. There's secure attachment, which about 50% of the adult population has. Secure attachment is I can ask for my needs to get met. I can handle things myself. My stress is pretty low because I have a community of people who accept me. I can tell people when there's a problem and we will work on it together as a team. Yeah, some people are a little weird and that's okay, but most people are going to be mostly okay. I can just relax and talk to them and get through my life. That's secure attachment. That's half the population. About 25% of the population have avoidance style. I can't trust other people. If I open up, if I trust someone, they're going to hurt me. I can't listen to other people. I have to keep them out, but I still have these needs. So I got to push their buttons and play games with them and may do the right thing. So they will give me what I need. But if they get too close, I got to back off because it's just not, I'm not comfortable being that close to people. Then the, these, these are the people we often call narcissists in that case. Um, and gaslighters, not all of them, but a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Then there's anxious style. 20% of the population has an anxious style. I am worthless on the inside. I don't believe I deserve to be loved. If I ever open up and show people who I am, they will see something wrong with me and abandon me. So I got to lock down and be perfect all the time, be anxious, be stressed out. And that's all I can do is earn approval, but I got to find people who have problems so I can solve those problems and they will never, ever leave me because they'll be so grateful. This is codependency that we work on right here. And then about 5% of the population has a mixture of the two, anxious, avoidant, um, also called disorganized of hot and cold and hot and cold and back and forth and back and forth. And, and it depends who they're with and what they're with. And the extreme version of that is borderline personality disorder. And it just, it flows from there. And it's, it's the people who need to be protected because they think they're worthless. The people who don't think they'll ever be protected because they're so resistant against other human beings. And the people who are just, they don't know where they're going, if they're coming or going. And that's okay. The All right. I have two, two immediate questions from that. Number one is where, where do those numbers come from? Who, who determined I've never been pulled on my attachment style. I've never been pulled nope. on anything really. So oftentimes yep. when I hear certain statistics, I, I wonder where, where they came from. So Good where is that breakdown from? That is a great question. I will say this regretfully, we don't even take attachments seriously enough for me to be able to point and say like the U S government has done this study. That's an average of multiple different studies that have been done. Smaller studies, They've pulled people and they've averaged out about 50% as secure and about 50% as insecure. I am, I'm looking for if there's research and, and money and grants out there to even do a bigger study because who knows, it might be getting worse. It looks like it's getting worse through the generations. Mm -hmm. That is an average of the multiple smaller studies that have been done is where that gets pulled from. Okay. And that's from the USA specifically? Specifically the USA, yes. Okay. So when you say getting worse, I assume that means a reduction in the number of secure percentage yes. of adults Over with the, the secure last... attachment style and an increase yes. in the others. 
Yeah. So uh, part of my work has been tracing over the last hundred years since World War II, World War I, I should say, how it has got worse through the generations in America and a little bit in Europe. It has deteriorated more and more with each successive generation and which each, which with each decade as it's gone on. That's been part of my work. It is getting worse. Mm-hmm. We are getting down to a point where it's an extreme case where people have very, very broken attachment now. And they can't even remember a time when they had a system that would have corrected it. The systems mm-hmm. have also been fully dismantled. So the self-correcting pieces that were there before, the buffers, those are gone too. Okay. So I want to get into, soon I want to get into why some of the ideas around why that's happening. But before that, I had another question around, assuming we go with that number for the breakdown, what is what degree of that is societal versus what degree is that kind of supposed to be so on on a historical level on a i don't know again there might not be maybe no one's really looked into this but in a sort of normal and healthy human population across cultures and countries and societies um is the is the ideal a hundred percent secure or is that just not something that is really possible because of all the different personality types and so on how much is societal Versus how much is just like, this is just how much this person is wired like that. That is a great question. You know, I don't know that we'll ever get 100%, but the way that attachment forms is the child comes out ready to start forming attachment. And within the first six months, the brain starts saying, am I going to be loved and cared for or are my parents completely avoidant from me? They're not meeting my needs. What is happening and how fast do they meet my needs? And then the brain starts saying, who is hurting me? And not just who's hurting me, but am I getting love? Am I getting reassurance? It's, I mean, this is like six months of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then up to, up to 12 years, even the experiences you have. The little child's brain, I've got four kids myself, and the little child's brain does not comprehend cause and effect very well. They think they cause everything that happens to them, or they blow things way out of proportion. And they don't understand that one person doesn't represent the entire population. So it's, mm-hmm. it's passed from parents to adults, and it's taught. Not just the bad things that you need to avoid doing, but also the good things you need to actively do. So a child who's in the NICU, I work with a lot of individuals who had great parents growing up, but they were in the NICU for three weeks or four weeks and their brain learned when I cry, no one will come help me. So I need to protect myself. And they've just built all this constant anxiety through their life. So there's always going to be some families in every society that are not going to be perfect, but there should be self-correcting systems around those aunts, uncles, grandparents, cousins, your brain only needs about two or three people who accept you and mm-hmm. for you to be revealed to them and loved and get that love. Two or three people change the whole game. It's when families are broken down, when you have daycare early on, when, when no, no parent is home and it's endless daycare where the child's competing with strangers for a stranger's attention. Mm-hmm. It is abuse and massive drug, drug epidemic levels. It is single parenthoods. Uh, single parent homes, it's moms coming home too exhausted from three jobs to take care of their child. And the child's brain thinks it's their fault. It is divorces and breaking up of parents. One of the best predictors of healthy attachment is having healthy attached parents who are married. Mm -hmm. That that Mm -hmm. seems to be it. So the healthier the, the society is shifted toward maintaining not just the nuclear family, but the extended family and giving them a healthy system where the family is the basic building block of the society and is nurtured carefully so that family bonds are strong and individuals aren't smothered, but they're also not just left alone to rot. When you have those systems in place, the attachment seems way more secure. When those systems break down, like we have, especially here in America, and every nuclear family has even been fractured, just about, 
there are no safeguards in place. And there are so many high risk factors that immediately start happening that children develop attachment as part of society. Now mm-hmm. that's, I, I don't know what the exact number is. Again, we need more research on this. They, they don't take attachment seriously in psychology. There's a science has not caught up to reality yet in this, yeah. regard, unfortunately, but that is the answer is shifting to a place where families, extended families are taken care of and are given the skills to be healthy. And, and we don't have things like here in the United States, the Great Depression, the mm-hmm. Dust Bowl, moving off the family farms and into cities and then working endless jobs and two parent incomes required and, and endless fatherlessness. All of that adds up and makes it so much worse. And, and we are yeah. built in America. We are built to give people bad attachment right now. Mm. It's so interesting when I discuss, you know, this is the first time discussing attachment specifically on this podcast, but something, you know, someone who is a keen observer of society and and culture, I, I often find it interesting when a modern society or some of our Western societies rapidly, aggressively, and I would say recklessly move away from certain ideas and traditions that our ancestors just knew, right? Like without having deep science or thinking about things on this heavy psychological level, it was just obvious to them that, okay, we need the family unit. We need, we need parents to stay together. We need the the children to be raised in this structure. We need grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. We need all of that wider input. We need that communal. And it seems like over the past several decades, people suddenly thought that they were too smart for all of this old school wisdom, all of this so-called old and traditional thinking and thought, you know what, let's just reinvent the wheel. Let's just, (laughs) let's throw all these notions out the window and let's just do whatever you want, whatever way. And we magically think there's going to be no negative consequences from that. And it's always just struck me as kind of strange where some of these conversations go and you're, I'm kind of like, do you need, do we need research and science for everything aren't some things just like well duh like obviously that's gonna happen obviously like you know i might you maybe people can't express it in the proper language right they can't use the scientific terms and they don't know the psychological terms and they wouldn't be able to tell you the different attachment styles and percentage mm-hmm. breakdowns and whatever but they're just like yeah well obviously if a child grows up in certain environments they're going to find it difficult to relate to people and form bonds Correct. and connections and so on and so forth and whereas if they're raised in you know a stable loving environment and you know their parents give them enough time and love and attention and then yeah on on average right every everyone's different but on average they're going to go on and they're going to carry that on and they'll probably pass that down to their children and so on and so forth. Yep. Exactly. Right. That's it. Yeah. So (laughs) we've talked about, uh, my next question previously was going to be, okay, well, what is, what is causing this? And I think Mm -hmm. you've, you've touched on quite a bit already. Is there any, are there any other major events or changes that you believe are causing this rise of unhealthy attachment patterns? Absolutely. So World War World War One was a meat grinder where we lost like a whole generation. And the ones who came back, we call them the, the, over here in the United States, the, the lost generation. And then you have the silent generation who went through the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression of, of economic crashes. And this was the first time that families had to move in, in large numbers. They moved off the farms into cities and, and the, the city life, urban life overtook farm life. And before that, people didn't travel more than 15, 20 miles from the place they were born. So they were around like 
you know, dozens or hundreds of family members and you grew up, you couldn't really keep secrets. So if you thought something was secretly wrong with you, you were quickly proven wrong because everybody knew you. So you would receive acceptance. And if you thought mm -hmm. the world was horrible and against you, you were quickly, quickly proven wrong because people at least could come along and fix things. And, and you would have all these safety systems around you as you grew up. We broke those up here in the United States. And then we went into this economic crash and hardship. Parents pulled away from kids. And the parents just said, like, hey, you know, I'm just going to work myself to death and take care of you. The silent generation, no love and no context. They just work themselves to death. And the baby boomers came along and said, wow, about half of them said, my parents love me so much. They're like breaking their backs. And the other half said, screw these people. They don't love me. They don't care about me. They're just mad all the time. About half the boomers got it and about half didn't. And that led to this massive disruption in our society of chasing into drugs and dopamine binges and getting cars and dates and casual sex and all kinds of problems that came from broken attachment and stress and trying to build new connections with human beings that they didn't know how to build. Then they had the X and Y generations who were just like deer in the headlights because they don't know what to do. Then they got divorced, the baby boomers, and their next set of kids were the millennials, and they made the copies of themselves, but the millennials had never seen a functioning society or family system before, so they don't even believe it's possible to love. Hmm. And attachment, the, when you have attachment, you work with other human beings. When you don't have, when you have broken attachment, you are used to being acted upon, so you act upon other human beings, or you hmm. know you will be acted upon. It, it's acting upon versus acting with. And it's our society is being ripped apart right now as the generations get worse. They have never seen an example of families working with each other, only acting upon each other over and over and over. So every shift that happens, then we medicate. We say, well, it's just a medication problem. I don't know why people are crazy. They just need meds. And then it's, well, they just need more money. Well, they just should get jobs. Well, they just need social media. They just need video games. They just need here. And then we break down and nobody's connected. And then it's all right. Well, now it's tribalism. Now it's people who hate each other. All right, what are arbitrary reasons we can connect outside the family? And then the government steps in, which makes everything worse, of, hey, here's these new policies we're implementing. We're going to control you people and threaten all kinds of problems have stepped in. Mm -hmm. It all comes down to encouraging people to either act upon each other or encouraging people to expect to be acted upon and then medicating the crap out of them when they can't manage the stress. That has been our societal shift. And that's why American society is ripping itself apart is the people who act with each other are pretty quiet. They're off in the corner. They're trying to make life work. Mm -hmm. And the people who are acting upon people or used to being acted upon are split into please someone rescue us from bad people or please someone don't ever let anyone talk to us or connect with us ever again. We're going to fight tooth and nail to never trust someone. And it's split between needing to be protected and nannied and never trusting any human being ever. And those are the extremes of American society that everyone mm -hmm. around the world associates us with. That's why it's getting worse is we don't know what it's like to act with people. We're just always acting upon each other. Yeah. That's such an interesting way to view the, to view the split, to view the polarization, right? Because so many people see things through a purely political lens. Um, and they just think it's as simple as left versus right or red versus blue or this versus that. And, you know, it's, it's certainly, it's not, binary there there aren't you know, besides sex there aren't very many binary splits in humanity but it's interesting to go deeper and to look at this more on on, on different levels right whether it's a moral level or a level of what you're discussing right now i've never really heard it described this way before but this mm -hmm. divide in how did you put it people who are working and acting with people versus those who 
are you know being acted upon and trying to act upon others and exactly. you know I've, I've i've defined it before as you know people who want to be left alone and people who refuse to leave other people alone um i yes. think you've said it in a, in a more refined way there and it's sort of interesting to trace that back and think okay well where does that come from why are why do some people find it so difficult to live and live and let live right why are there people trying to use the power of the state or use authoritarian force to you know demand and try to force other people to do all of these things lord knows we've seen this over the past three years in particular where you know two and a half years where where things have just been very very strange and there's been there's been this opening created for the government to step in and start playing mommy start playing daddy we've seen the infantilization i call it of society where adults are being not treated treated not just as children but as infants right literally to the point where you can't go outside hey government says you can't go outside government says you need to you know cover your face in public government says you need to stand in the circle you need to follow these arrows on the street you need to do this you can't do this you can't do that you can't see and it all comes under the banner of so-called safety um which again is infantilizing because that's why you put boundaries on very small children because you know if you just leave them to their own devices they'll kill themselves within half an hour um but as adults it was it's been very strange for me to see that and I've been spending a lot of time just, you know, looking from different angles and thinking like, what's, what's going on here? Because there has been a behavioral shift in the way that people see this power dynamic and the way people view the locus of control, whether they, they think it's within them or they think it's outside them. So I'm very much like, okay, look, I'm, I'm a grown up. I can make my decisions in life. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I have that confidence and self-esteem. Okay, like, you know, I'll, uh, I'll take reasonable precautions to certainly to keep myself alive and to help keep other people alive, certainly not to in- put them put them at unnecessary risk or anything like that. But there are millions of people who don't trust that, who don't trust themselves, who don't trust other people right. to just go, okay, you know what? I'm comfortable with other adults being able to make those general decisions as long as they're not you know they're not directly taking my stuff they're not hurting me you know maybe once in a while you know sometimes you might see something you you know you don't like or you disapprove of but generally speaking you trust humanity enough to just be able to get on without without thinking the government needs to be involved in everything yeah yeah healthy i will say this healthy democracy only works when the family security uh, is when family is attached Healthy families and attachment and good attachment and secure attachment in society is the only way for democracy to work. Because when the system becomes broken and everybody either is extremely angry and distrustful of each other with the avoidance style or extremely desperate to be taken care of because they don't trust themselves, the anxious style, it, it just collapses. They are unable to work together and democracy no longer functions. And that's where we're at is not the secure attachment, like you've described in the middle of, hey, you know what, let's take a little bit from here, a little bit from here, let's work together, let's compromise, it's not life or death, to if we do your way, we are all going to die, and you're going to mm-hmm. try to kill me. No, you want to kill me, and you're trying to murder me over here, and I'm going to have, the, you know, that that's the fight that we're seeing, the extremes back and forth of how can one side or the other use the state to control the other side. That's why it doesn't work, is the attachment is just not there. They don't know how to work with another human being and then you see the extreme buildup, it just gets worse. It does. So we've talked about the problem. How do we, how do we fix the world, Adam? 
How do we fix the world? That's my job. So I'm not just healing one-on-one. I do coaching with a lot of people. And what coaches one person coaches everybody. It is building in a system where you learn it is even possible to have better attachments. So just hearing about attachment, people go, what the heck is that? I want to learn more about it. And it breaks their mind because the belief from childhood is water is wet, gravity makes things fall down, and I can never connect to another human being on earth because I will get hurt. <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the absolute belief and the laws of the universe. When you challenge that and say, no, you cannot trust unhealthy people who are going to act upon you and hurt you, but there are safe, healthy people out there, and most people will want to connect with you and work with you and be a human being. Here is what that looks like. Here is how you open up in a relationship. When that happens, even just a little bit, people get hopeful, and they think about it, and they think, hmm, I wonder if that's possible. Then they hear more, and they hear all the people who fixed it. I have testimonials from clients. They're like, Adam, I never thought this was amazing. I post those. <laughs> Because it's so crucial. Half the battle is even getting people to believe it's possible to heal. And then you experience it a little bit and you, you learn to manage the anxiety. So the, the brain works like this. You've got your logical left side and your emotional right side. I don't know how my camera's flipped. But your logical left side diminishes when you have emotional spikes. So your logical functioning diminishes and your emotional mind is only good for deciding in the next five seconds how to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. And if you have anxiety issues, and, and stress issues and attachment issues, you are chronically at like this, diminished logic, spiking emotions, and you have very little room to go, which is why people are on a hair trigger and they're constantly binging sugar and pornography and, and everything of dopamine to try to just manage that stress, that constant cortisol. And that right there, when you fix the attachment, even a little bit, you manage that anxiety and then you have what I call, I am an anxious person. You have the, I am an anxious person speech with somebody. You say, I am, you may not know this about me. You go to one person you can trust, your partner, your best friend. You may not know this about me, but I am an anxious person. I try to push people's buttons because I don't think I can work with anyone. I don't think I deserve to be loved. I don't think I can open up and trust people. And I hate it. It makes me break my principles and do things I don't agree with. And, and I have to do that to survive. And I hate it. And I never want to do it again. So with you, I want to have a completely honest relationship from now on. Can we please build an honest relationship from now on, you and me? And that's it. And that's the hardest conversation that person almost will ever have in their life. And the other person is looking at them with care in their eyes and leaning in and saying, yeah, I already knew this about you, that you were anxious. I didn't realize it was this bad. Yeah, let's have an honest relationship. That sounds great. And the person's brain freaks out and says, what just happened? They didn't throw a rock at me. They didn't jump out the window. It's nothing. And then they start, your brain starts getting vasopressin, which is a hormone you get when you bond with people in during stress and mm -hmm. you resolve stress together. You get oxytocin, which is the warmth and care and nurturing and all of that good stuff. Oxytocin releases GABA, which diminishes anxiety and depression response. And you get um, serotonin for the first time, often many of them, not first time, but you get a big rush of serotonin. About one quarter of American women are on an antidepressant right now. And most of that serotonin problem is, is coming from our relationships, but we haven't talked about them. And you get that serotonin and the dopamine and all of that rushes through your brain. And you finally get what a human being is supposed to get every day of their life from their family system. And it feels like opium and you become so incredibly addicted. So you start chasing it and you start opening up more, connecting more, being more honest, sharing your needs. You start learning that and building that in on purpose. Zuby, it takes a couple of weeks. Like I have had people come in addicted to heroin, homeless, miserable, and they just moved in with their mom who doesn't trust them or like them very much because he's stolen money from her. And a month later, 
he fixes attachment because he has to with two to three people. His brain gets rushed with the good hormones. And he says, Adam, I hate drugs. I never, I don't even get cravings for heroin. It's been a month. I don't even get cravings because the cravings for good love and connection is so much more powerful. Mm. I am, I've got a job. I'm working on relationships. My mom has never been so proud of me. I am so, I didn't even think I could feel this way. And they're euphoric, like in a way drugs have never got them. Another way, I've had couples come in where the affair has been dis- an affair has been discovered two weeks before, but they both have severe attachment issues. And no wonder, if that's where if most affairs come from is attachment issues. And they come in and they say, I don't know if we're going to be together. I say, okay, let me teach you about attachment. I teach them about attachment. I give them homework. They go home. They have some conversations. They come back the next week. We talk about it again. They do it again. By the third week, when the third, third session, it's been like one month, maybe four or five weeks since the affair was discovered. They've both fixed their attachment and they report higher satisfaction in their marriage than they did as newlyweds while dating or at any previous time. And it's been just a month since the affair was discovered and they are fulfilled and working together as a team because they are working together the way they should. And they get the full brain chemistry that a human being is meant to get. Many people come off their drugs that they've been on. And I'm talking street drugs, but also mm-hmm. prescription drugs. I'm talking all of that. You fix this by opening up to two or three other human beings and receiving full acceptance from them and purposely working with them. And it rewrites the way that your brain works. And then you are bonded to them. And then you go out and do that more and more with other people. And it becomes easier and easier. And your whole system spreads the healthy attachment like this. It's like the antivirus that Mm -hmm. goes out everywhere and spreads and fixes everybody that it starts touching because the systems change then individuals who are resistant, they have to adapt to the healthy system. So then they have to, then you're protected against manipulators and the manipulators lose their control. And the system just fixes. When I help one person and I coach them, their whole family starts healing because they go out and they just start doing it differently. And they're working with people and showing it's possible. That is how you fix society. That is how you fix society right there is at the family level, at the individual level, at the family, the group, the bond, the tribe, the network, you fix one person in that group and you watch it spread from them. That changes the world very fast. Awesome, man. Well, it sounds like you're, you're doing God's work out there, man. Um, <laughs> and no, honestly, man, I, I, don't, I don't say that lightly. I mean, I think I that we all have different talents, abilities, interests, uh, skill sets, and so on. And the greatest thing we can do with that is to help other people in our own unique and different ways. So props to you for doing that because those are miraculous stories and I'm sure you've got a lot of them and it's a, uh, it's important work. It's important work and it's not something that uh, everyone is doing. I have a question um, in terms of these different attachment styles or some of the impacts that childhood stuff can have on adults and so on. Is there are there any marked differences between the two sexes? Are there do do boys and men end up is there is there an attachment style that's more common amongst them or you know or for girls and women is it different? Is there any sort of split there or is it similar? That's a good question. I see a pretty good blend of both to be honest okay. with you. I see I see it with men and women. I don't know I don't know if one is more common than the other one. 
Um, I know that some personality disorders are more common among men and women. Borderline personality disorder is typically more common among women. Antisocial personality, the violent one is, and criminal one is usually more common among men. Mm-hmm. That might just be that those are natural outgrowths of some of our different extreme brain chemistries. Men might just tend to be more violent in that way. And men and women might tend to be more emotional and manipulative in that way. The extreme versions, I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have seen the nice guy syndrome. Nice guy, if we got to do everything right, be perfect and, and smooth the girls by getting their approval and every girlfriend becomes his mommy. That's mm-hmm. usually the anxious attachment style. The guys who are playboys and just out there, you know, the uh, super, super pickup artists, they're usually <laughs> avoidance. They're usually avoidance style. Yes. And they specifically prey on anxious attachment women who are out there being nice girls who are trying to earn endless approval who are the girls who are in relationships for eight years saying, I wonder if he's ever going to propose marriage to me because it's been eight years now. And she doesn't have the guts to ask him about it. The, mm-hmm. the girls who are out there just giving themselves away in hookup culture are usually the anxious attachment girls who don't know how to earn love, but they can try to get some approval with their body. And they think that's how you get love. They have no idea. And the mm-hmm. avoidant women are the ones out there in hookup culture who make jokes about how they just use men and go straight through them. And have, I've never had an orgasm with a man and oh, I never will. That's usually the avoidant women, but they also get married and then control their family into the ground. That's also usually avoidant women. It's it looks different with each usually, Mm -hmm. but it's it's an ugly, ugly system, man. Hookup culture is a big place where the two smash up and it's it's a meat grinder. Talk about that a little more. Yeah. Hookup culture. So it is designed to give you false intimacy. And you just get the endless sex. And that's all they really think there is. And then they go in there. The nice, kind people go in there. Not necessarily secure attachment, but usually the people who have anxious attachment go in there hoping to earn approval and love from somebody. And instead, they get the pump and dump. They get they get the ghosted. They get the moment they start having feelings, they develop bonds for another person. And then the avoidant person they've connected to backs way off and ghosts them and then just does a circle around five or six different girls every time their feelings start to go down and the commitment levels die down, then they go back with them and back with them and back with them. And, and that is where so many people are. And then they try to hook up and build a relationship, but now they think there's something wrong with them or wrong with other people. So they don't know how to build a relationship based on principles and goals, mm-hmm. mutual shared goals and mutual principles. They don't know how to build that. So they just get in a relationship based on feelings and they think they have to make each other feel certain things all the time to keep the relationship healthy. They are acting upon each other, making each other feel certain things, good and bad, to control the relationship and keep it stable. It's the fluff. They're, they're just they're engaging in endless fluff, but they're not building an actual stable relationship. And that goes along once they get married until they have kids and the mom's brain forcibly through childbirth and breastfeeding gives her oxytocin bond with her child for the first time that she's ever had. And then she's super invested and protected with these children and starts resenting the dad for not bonding with them and not giving them healthy attachment. And the dad's like, I don't understand what you're doing. Why are you mad at me? I'm the same as I've ever been. The children become more and more anxious as they go through. And then she gets more resistant from dad. And that leads to right, so massive levels of divorce and resentment. I've written a book on that too. Um, it's just, it's overwhelming how hookup culture leads to broken marriages, to broken people, to broken kids, to the next hookup culture. It's just, there's no love, man. People don't mm-hmm. know what love really is. I hear that. For you to be so interested in this area, what, was there something that, you experienced or saw yourself that really made you want to get so because whenever someone has like a, a a unique and specific interest especially in something that's as rare and niche 
as what we're discussing here. I'm often keen to know what it is that drives and motivates that curiosity to go to the point of researching it and writing books and leaving a job and working with this and taking on clients. Like, what is that? What's that driver? Absolutely. So I grew up in a family system where like, like almost every grandparent and great grandparent had some sort of problem. They were a foster kid. They were adopted. They were abused. They were all my grandparents just went through just awful experiences with their family systems. And then my parents did what they could to try to figure out how to be loving parents, but it just wasn't there. So I grew up with anxious attachment style myself. I was an anxious guy. I was Mm -hmm. the nice guy trying to go out and make people get approval, be smart, be, you know, all these cool things. And it never worked. And it was awful. So I fixed that. And I said, man, I, I gotta, like, I can't do this anymore. So I just, I started opening up and connecting to people and it worked. Mm-hmm. And I said, dude, like, and I looked around at all my family and all my friends and everyone around me in the city that I lived in, in California, just like devastation. And it was like waking up in the ruins of a culture mm-hmm. and saying like, all these people are about to die. What do we, what can we do? No one is solving this problem. I guess I'm going to have to. So I went to school six years in school. I got my master's degree, three more years of apprenticeship to get my license under five clinicians with four licensure types. It was, it was a hard drive, man. And then I got my license and I started practicing and just working in low income clinics and working in, in, in jails and, and working mm-hmm. with inmates and stuff. And then working with bigger family systems and then rich people and, and working with CEOs, executives, trust fund families, celebrity families, building up, building up. And it was like no one, everywhere I went, I'd talk about attachment. People would go, oh, yeah, didn't they teach us that in grad school, that it's only for kids? And, and that's it, it had to work. It was mm-hmm. seeing the ruins that I was living in and having to fix it for everybody that I could. That was, yeah. that was my personal drive. Thank you. Nobody's ever really asked me that before. Uh, it's called Real Talk with Zuby. I like to... <laughs> Try to get 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 a little deeper when I can. Um, how do people avoid the overcorrection? Because I think that it's very possible on these things for people to overcorrect, right? So you said you you were an anxious guy, and you were you you didn't use this word, but you kind of you know use the nice guy, you know maybe a bit mm-hmm. supplicating, people pleasing, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. How did you avoid the overcorrection? Because there are people, especially especially guys, but girls too. There are there are guys who are like that, and then they massively overcorrect into the super avoidance. Right? They go like super red pill, and they right <laughs> like like to an extreme level, and it's still you know maybe they're having some more surface level success with with women and with some other things, but they've taken it so far that they now also are having attachment issues just in the, you know, you've moved from the, how did you describe it? Avoidance. No, you've moved from the anxious to the avoidance. Mm-hmm. So and that you, is, yeah. Yeah. That's what the red pill community right now, unfortunately teaches is the only alternative out there so far has been, Hey guys, do you feel really weak and pathetic and nobody wants you? Are you an incel? Well, guess what? Now you can control women because they're stupid anyway. So come in here and we'll show you how to exploit all these anxious women that are just up for sex. And they pull you in and they teach you how to become avoidant, how to mimic avoidant behaviors. And you learn that they work. So your brain says, whoa, this is great. So you be, you build on, you're an anxious guy that believes there's something wrong with you, but then you cover it up with these mimicking avoidant behaviors. It's this weird chameleon act. And you, you, you avoid that 
I avoided it because I was married. I got married mm. when I was 22. And it was, I was like, man, I got to fix my marriage because I'm, I'm this nice guy. And she hates it. And so we fixed it. And I was married. And I was like, well, I'm not going to go out sleeping with all these women. Like, that'd be crazy. I'm not <laughs> doing what these guys are telling me to do. That's crazy. No. So I started, I said, there's got to be an alternative here, man. What's the alternative? And it was to actually talk to my wife like a human being mm. and love my wife and say, hey, dude, you know, here, here's what's going on. Here's what's going on with me. Here's what I'm learning. Here's what people are telling me. This doesn't sound right. Do you really want me to come home and start trying to control you and play these games with you? And she's like, yeah, please don't do that. That would be horrible. So <laughs> we, we avoided that. It was by maintaining open connection with other human beings, and especially my wife in that regard. But, but human beings, as you fix it, you learn about it and fix it and you lean into the experience of fixing it and it pulls you in the right direction. Our brains are meant to get a certain balance of vasopressin, oxytocin, GABA, serotonin and dopamine it's meant to get a good mix of those five and when we get them the brain recognizes it of oh that's the correct pattern because there is one correct way to be and it's to have a healthy blending of those things the brain recognizes that objectively good moment and it says aha that's what got me that i'm going to do that the avoidance the red pill community they give you the endless dopamine hits but they don't give you the other four things that you're supposed to be getting. It's endless dopamine hits and it's nothing more than masturbation. It's all it is, is masturbatory lifestyle. Um, this is how you do it by bonding with people. That's why it's so crucial during the healing of this thing to experience that change with two to three healthy people. Your brain locks in and never wants to let that goodness go ever again. So you don't overcorrect that way. You, you perfectly correct. Mm -hmm. What have you learned from being a father or becoming a father? Oof, yeah, I've got four kids. Uh, my oldest is six. So it's, it's, I call them my swarm. They're my swarm. <laughs> um, I have learned that human beings are born seeking good attachment. And we mm. keep trying to get good attachment. And we keep learning for it and aching for it. And when our parents make a mistake, I'm not a perfect parent. I make mistakes. My kids will kind of look at me and be confused. And then they'll ask me why I did whatever it was. If I snapped at them or something, because I had a really all stupid day and I was an idiot and I snapped at my kid and I'm like, well, just, just do that. Oh, dad, are you mad at me? And I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> so then I have to fix it. It is the biggest thing I have learned is that families are meant to be a self-correcting system where it's not you, the dad at the top, holding everything down and making sure everybody feels perfect and everything is safe. Families are meant to be a self-correcting system where every member is working to bring every other member back into a point of health. And if one person spirals off, the whole family system is there to help them and mm -hmm. take care of them and teach them. Families are meant to be self-correcting systems. And, and it's not that hard to build as long as you don't do the bad things, yeah. which most of us can avoid, and you know the good things to do, which most parents don't know the good things to do and how to build that with their kids. And that's, that's what I teach, man. And a lot of parents is just like, hey, here's how to actually show your kids they love you, that, mm -hmm. that you love them and how to make them perceive your love. It's not enough to love them. They need to perceive that love. Here's how to talk to your kids and work with your kids, even parenting with your kids instead of parenting upon your kids. Here's how to parent with your children so that they are human beings in your family instead of being acted upon until they're 18. Mm -hmm. Even that, man, that's how families are meant to be, self-correcting systems. What are some of those good things that you think a lot of parents miss out on? Oh, man, acting upon each other and acting upon them. So when you discipline them, you act upon them. When you talk to them and you act upon them, you're going to do this because I'm your dad. You just have to do this. It's just something you have to do, kid. Don't ask me the answers. Don't ask me questions. I don't know what it's about. Just do it. Quit arguing with me. I'm your parent. Go to bed at this time. No, I don't care. I am going to spank you because you're doing X, Y, or Z. It, it's the casual, dis casual uh, punishment in place of healthy discipline. 
And it's working together with your child to convince them and teach them and then explain to them the context when you make a mistake. That is crucial. Being able to say, man, I'm sorry, kid. I, I tell my kid that if I make a mistake, it's my son. I say, you know what, son, I'm sorry. Daddy, Dad, I, I had a bad day. That's no excuse. I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have snapped at you like that. Hey, you know, we don't do that as a family, right? And we build that back in the identity. We don't do it as a family, right? No, we don't. Dad. Okay, cool. That's cool. I won't do that to you again. And make sure you don't do that to your sisters either. And then when he does that to his sisters, I can yep. say, hey, you remember that time daddy did that to you and it felt really awful. And I fixed my mistake and I told you I was sorry. You need to go tell them you're sorry because you just made them feel the way I made you feel that day. <gasps> and there's that empathy that he can learn from. And I model how to build a self-correcting system also with them. So they're great, man. My kids love each other. They just can't. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Is there is there ever a time and place for the more dictatorial approach? <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I there's three different parenting styles we look at. One is the authoritarian of I am the parent. One yeah. is is the, the permissive style of, okay, you know, I'm your best friend. Yeah. It's okay. And the other is um, authoritative. Authoritative. Okay. In the mm, middle. It's mm. the balance. It's I am, I am the head of the family, so I do need to make the decisions, but you are a human being and I respect you and I'm going to take that into account. When they demand ice cream for breakfast, there is absolutely no, <laughs> they're not eating ice cream for breakfast. They would eat ice cream for breakfast every morning. Of course. Nope. We're not having breakfast, but here's why. And then I explain why I don't mm -hmm. just decision. I explain why that decision is being made. And then I say, what you can ask me is not, can you eat ice cream right now? The answer, the question you should ask me is when can we eat ice cream? And mm -hmm. then they say, okay, dad, when can we eat ice cream? Okay. Let's talk about that. Let's work on that together. Cause I don't never want you to have ice cream again. Let's talk about that and when is an appropriate time to eat that ice cream and then we can make that plan. So, you know, maybe for maybe after dinner. It's a hot day. Maybe we can go out for dinner for ice cream later tonight. You work collaboratively with collaboratively with them, but you do have to make the decision. You are the parent, yeah. but you explain. You explain so they can make good decisions when they grow up. Yeah, I, I think that explanation part is um is is important. I'm not a parent yet. I will be one day, yeah. um, but I think that explanation is really important because. I know I myself, I mean, I, I went to boarding school uh, mm -hmm. from the age of 11 in, a, in mm -hmm. a whole different country and then university. So from from a young age, I was traveling internationally and, you know, spending a lot of time away from my parents and so on. And I know one thing that really bothered me about one thing. I The thing I probably disliked most about boarding school was that there were rules that didn't make sense and that were never explained why it why they existed. Yes. And this is, you know, again, this is we're not talking children under six here, we're talking, you know, people who are 12 to 17 years old. And there are certain rules in place. Okay, I'll give you a real example. The first boarding school I went to for two years, we had to have the first and last five minutes of every meal in silence. Huh. All boys school room full of hundreds of boys, first five minutes and last five minutes of every meal had to be in silence, the headmaster would stand up and ring a bell. And when that bell rings, you're allowed to talk. And when he rings it again, everyone has to be silent. Just why does this rule exist? Be because it's the rule, right? Because it's the rule. That, that wasn't, even if I didn't agree with the explanation, it's like they didn't even feel the need to explain it, right? And there were many other things like this where there were just these arbitrary rules in place that you can't work out the rationale or logic behind them, but they're really keen on enforcing them and punishing you if you break them. But there's no good reason for the rule. And it's just that, oh, well, that's just our rule and we're the teachers and you don't, you know, you don't, you don't question it. So I think from that, 
I think that's one reason why now I hate it when rules don't make sense. <laughs> right. So when someone, when a, a government or someone or an establishment or whatever makes some rule, I'm like, what's the, what, what's the point of this rule? Like this doesn't, what's the point of this? It doesn't, it doesn't help anything. It doesn't do anything. It's just annoying. Right. And they're just like, Oh, well, that's the rule. I'm like, if your explanation for the rule is that's the rule, then, you know, I, and this is why I asked you that question earlier, because I think, okay, you know, with a, a two-year-old or a three-year-old at some point, you you know, if they're just going to keep going, why, why, why? You might at some point need to go, look, because I'm the, I'm, I'm your dad and I said so, right? <laughs> but when you, but as people get older, if you're dealing with teenagers or adults, that just doesn't fly anymore, no. you know, when it's just like, oh, well, we, because we said so. No, that breaks the trust. You are acting upon them as an object instead of acting with them as a human being. Mm -hmm. And it makes them resent you because now they don't want to work with you. They want to get around you. And that's, you can't do that, man. If you're parenting and you're building a self-correcting system and you want to see your grandkids someday and not have them taken away and run away from you, you got to work with them. You got to work with your kids. Give them the answers. Let them be good adults when they grow up. You, you are, I think of my kids as apprentice adults. They are apprentices under me that I am responsible for training them to be healthy adults who can grow up and live a good life and raise good kids of their own. They're not yeah. little objects that I got to kick around for the next 18 years and then finally boot them out of my house and not be done with them. It's, man, you're raising people, people that mm -hmm. will be with you and probably people that will take care of you when you're like 85 years old and you're in mm -hmm. a wheelchair and your teeth are falling out and you need someone to love you and pay your bills and help you. Like, the shoe gets on the other foot pretty quick, man. Eventually it always does. Yeah. And and I think that's something that people, people forget. And it's another thing that's, um, you know, there's a lot of things I love about Western society and Anglosphere countries, but I also have my, my major criticisms and I don't like the whole, um, there's a couple things. I don't like the whole, you know, kick your kids out at 18 thing. I don't like the, you know, shove your parents into a nursing home and don't visit them or care for them. Like, I don't, I don't like that mentality. I, I think it's too atomized. I think there's a, there's a time and place for individuality. I'm a big fan and proponent, proponent of individu individuality to a degree, but it, it's too atomized, right? We're not meant to just be these little floating islands that just live completely by ourselves, disattached from everybody else. And you know, think we don't affect It's like, no, they're, they're supposed to be a unit. They're supposed to be a family unit, a wider family unit, a, you know, communities composed of these family units and individuals and so on. And like many other things, I think people, I don't know, maybe got so like cocky and arrogant that they thought, ah, oh, you know what, like to hell with all of that old stuff again, we're just going to break the mold and just go off. And, and I'm like, well, people are constantly talking about mental health issues and anxiety and depression. What? And I'm like, I'm like, duh, right. You've, you've created the perfect cocktail for, you've created the perfect cocktail for this in many ways. We haven't even gotten onto food and sedentary lifestyles and, you know, the mm -hmm. media and what people are watching, what people are consuming through their mouth, through their eyes, through their ears, <laughs> all of this stuff. And I'm like, you're kind of creating the perfect cocktail for mental health issues. And then you want to exacerbate, you, know, you know what, let's shove people in their houses for six months and tell them not to go outside. Let's, for, let's block smiles. Let's prevent yes. people from smiling at each other and seeing human faces. Oh, and we're not going to have any repercussions. And now two and a half years later, they're like, oh, there's been a surprising rise in mental, just like they're pretending to be weirded out by inflation. Now they're also like, oh, there's been a rise in certain mental health issues. And there's, oh, kids are not 
developing speech patterns properly. And, and I'm like, duh. Yeah. Um, it's almost like people have forgotten the social and human aspects of humanity and yes. on a big level, the powers that be sort of treating the population as pawns or as, as objects, just as like little machinations, human beings with feelings and needs and desires, just, oh, we can just move these pieces around on the chessboard and it'll be okay. And it's like, no, you're destroying those things that give people meaning, give people purpose, give people direction, give people a sense of security and belonging and all this. And it's like, I don't know, it, it seems like on all these different levels, it's being attacked and manipulated and twisted in all these different areas. And to actually be healthy and to raise more healthy people, you have to push back against so much of the programming because so much of the programming is is negative and it's designed to get you caught in these weird loops and you have to go right. no I, i'm not going to i'm not going to listen to that i'm not going to eat that i'm not going to watch that i'm not going to behave like that i don't want you know you have to really keep pushing against it all that's right and it starts with us it starts with fixing it and pushing back you heal your attachment everybody out there listening to this you heal your attachment and then help somebody else and build a healthy family of some kind whatever that looks like if that's marriage and kids, if that's a, a pseudo family, if that's adopting brothers and sisters and building a family tribal network, whatever that is. Um, John Adams was a famous, one of the founders of the American Revolution, founders of our country, one of my direct descendants, or direct ancestors, actually. He said, I'm going to study military and naval matters so that my children can study mathematics and business. And they will study mathematics and business so that their children can study sculpture and art. And that is where we are all at right now is we are going to study attachment and push back piece by piece and work like dogs so that our kids can have a little bit better so that they can study it from a better place. And they'll actually see some healthy systems and they can build healthy systems back in. We tried the atomization of every human being, like you mm -hmm. said, and there is not enough medications on earth to stop the disaster. <laughs> There's just not, you can't stop the bleed. Once you destroy everything, you have to build the pieces back in and make sense. And, and maybe that was part of it. We forgot what the rules were for and we broke the rules. And now we are figuring out what the rules were for and we're reintroducing the rules as they make sense to us with maybe updated systems. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're having to do right now, man. And that's the process. We have to fix it for us so that the next generation is better off than we are. I love that, man. Adam, where can people find you online? Where can they follow oh, you? Oh, dude, I just put my brand new website up yesterday. It's adamlanesmith.com, L-A-N-E. You don't want to be Adam Smith and write books because that's an old Scottish economist. Um, adamlanesmith.com is the best place to find me. You'll find my coaching on there. I am coming out with a brand new video course about attachment and why it's an evolutionary adaptation and how to fix it. That course should be out like next week. I've got my books, everything on my website, adamlanesmith.com. Best place awesome. to find me. Nice one, Adam. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. It's been really insightful. I have learned a lot from this and I love the work you're doing, man. So keep it up. Thank you, man. You too. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand. Stunt me destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.